Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 113 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. Rod Murray's my name, and what matters on this episode is the top end of town. The PGA Tour and European Tour were making a joint announcement last week about scheduling, co-sanctioning, and more. However, as is almost always the case with these things, it is perhaps what wasn't said that might be more important than what was. Joining me to explore this topic, and no doubt many more, are my regular co-hosts in Jeff Shackleford and Mike Clayton, alongside state-of-the-game favourite Richard Gillis. So let's bring them in. Jeff Shackleford needs no introduction, but we'll give him one anyway. His blog at jeffshackleford.com is one of the most influential in the game, and his quadrilateral newsletter is fast gaining the same status. There was news on that front today also, Jeff, which we might get to touch on, but first, welcome to you. Looking forward to chatting today. Thank you. Yes, Rod. Uh, lots Lots to get to. There's always lots to get to in lockdown here in Australia. An equally important voice in the game through his playing, course design, in particular his writing and commentary. It's Mike Clayton. Clayton, I'd say good to chat to you, but I think I feel like I've been chatting to you for the last three days nonstop. I mean, this is our, not that anyone cares, but our third six o'clock morning in a row, which is, sounds like a good idea at the time until the alarm goes off. Deep in the first world weeds we are with that one. To make sure we've got all points of the globe covered, we head to London where we find perhaps one of sport's most prolific podcasters, co-founder, I think, or perhaps founder, and host of the unofficial partner podcast or podcasts, covering every imaginable facet of the business of sport. It's Richard Gillis. Richard, great to have you back. I think this is your third or fourth go. We love when we get to chat to you. Uh, Thanks for taking some time today. Not at all. Good to be here. Thanks for the invite. I'm try- Let's start, before we get to the golf, tell me about Unofficial Partner. Am I right in thinking, Richard, that your introduction to podcasts came when you made your first appearance on State of the Game? I think it was pretty much that, yeah. I, I mean, I was, I was dabbling a bit before that, and we're going back a few years now, but we started yeah. about sort of two and a bit years ago, probably, and there was just, as ever, with these conversations, you know, you're sort of, you're looking at where there's a space and a and a niche for these things. And, you know, we're all in a niche, aren't we? And um, we looked at the sport, you know, the sports business media, mm-hmm. and there was a spot for podcasts because podcasts, as we know, and we, you know, I like podcasts, but it also, they also do a, quite a few jobs well. And there is a space where if you go into most, and we're looking at the, from a sort of business category, really, um, you go to a lot of conferences, there's a, there's a trade media sort of ecosystem, all of which is fine, but it's just PR-led stuff. And, you know, you, you know what it's like. You're on a conference panel and people are just sort of trotting out comms lines. And podcasts, you can get actually just more interesting conversations. So yeah, that, was cool. the, that was the angle. And because yeah. sport is just a sort of collection of different industries clumped together, you know, then inevitably you there is a lot of rabbit holes you can get there. Yeah, well, there's lots of similarities and lots of stuff that's different, isn't there? There's some stuff about F1 that golf could learn from and some stuff that if golf tried to take on from F1 would be the worst thing imaginable, which is what makes it all so interesting. Well, glad it's going so well for you, Richard, and you do pump out lots and lots and lots of content. Anybody with an interest in sports business who's not listening really should start. Let's get back to the golf. Jeff, I want to start with you. This We heard in November last year this alliance, strategic alliance announced between the PGA Tour and the European Tour. Is that code for PGA Tours taking over the European Tour? And is the announcement we saw last week step one in that process? I don't know if taking over is the right description. And I'll, I'll be very curious to hear what, what Richard's take is on all this uh, from the, the European perspective. And but But to me, it, it looks... 
uh, like they're saving the European tour, at least temporarily, but I worry that long-term that uh, it's going to um, really kind of stifle or, or kill the European tour, frankly. Um, I wasn't As we too- know it, you mean? Yeah, I think so. I think that's the, the goal. Now, a lot of that depends on how they they structure all of their deals. You know, the PGA Tour is run by people who are incentivized to just add playing opportunities and tournaments and, and grow purses. So if that becomes part of, if the European Tour's uh, schedule becomes part of that thinking, then maybe there's a chance they will save it because they just love to add playing opportunities and try to grow purses. But uh, the initial announcement was fine. Uh, it was interesting, but it, I, to me, the, the thing that stood out was that they are just giving some money to keep the Irish open going or, or on a certain level, but they could not get it to that level of Rolex Series event or World Golf Championship or whatever you want to call it, which is the very thing they need to to stave off these disruptor organizations that are saying your model doesn't work. And so the fact they couldn't get that uh, over the finish line for this announcement to me was very disconcerting. And uh, Paul McGinley had a different take and, and uh, gave very long quotes to the Daily Mail and a very uh, positive uh, spin on all this, which I thought was interesting. And I, I wondered if it was because the way Keith Pelly presented it when they rolled this out uh, last week, it was not impressive and it did not leave me at least, and I would suspect you guys feeling uh, like, wow, this is really this is really a great future for the European Tour. Hmm. Richard, what's your take? Is it, and there's a lot in that to unpack, as Jeff mentions there, and possibly a lot of it based on these two, well, now two potential rival leagues wanting to start up, the, the one with the Saudi Arabian money backing and the one that was the original that splintered off from there that no longer has that connection. The European Tour, PGA Tour, coexisted for decades it's seemingly quite happy and all of a sudden we've got this what's what's the business when you look at it through the business lens what does this tell us about what's going on um yeah there is a lot in it and i think i mean i was talking to a few people that have come and gone around the tour over the last couple of years you know just in the last week about this and the message is pretty clear that this is sort of there is a path that they're on and um this is just one more one more step i mean that i've got a load of questions as well i mean i don't have many answers i'm afraid but i've got quite a few questions in terms of i can sort of see it the the pressures and the you know that are on both the tours much more on the european tour than the pga tour but obviously the you know the 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 leagues and the the disruptive disruptor ideas are hanging around there they're not going to go away they've been there for you know a while so that's just a constant in the sort of environment of running a golf tour today it's it's the it's a constant in running any sport if you're a rights governing body so there's always that's always going to be there my question is I can't quite get my head around what's in it for the PGA tour I looked at the sort of um the lady, the LPGA example, is looking for a case study in terms of well, you know, do, what happens when you get into bed with the PGA Tour, and and you know there was that Hank Haney court case that Jeff covered, you know, really well about well all the media was it ninety five percent of the media revenue or more than ninety five percent 
went to the to the men's game. You know, I'm not sure the PGA Tour does mergers. I don't think. I think it's there is a um, a power sort of relationship in any coming together of corporate entities in this way. I think there is a. I was looking at the Scotland deal. Obviously, they've got a sponsor, Genesis, which is a big Korean, you know, new Korean brand, a car company, upmarket sort of electric cars. And okay, that's come in. They want to, uh, uh, they 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 want to hit Europe as and and um, the Asian market as well as the US market. So this is a from a just a purely sponsorship point of view. There's an easy. Um, easy way of doing that. Is that it? Or is it going to be an a sort of evolution of, of more and more things that, 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 that come together? And there's the golf side of it. And are we then entering a sort of period where you're looking at a sort of centralised tour or series of tours on the commercial side? So, you know, is, is the centre of gravity going to move from Wentworth over to um, the PGA Tour office. Should it? And is that where all the sponsorship and commercial deals are going to take place? Is that where the media rights are going to get signed? Should it? Would that make sense, Richard? There is always a, you know, an accountant would say, yeah, that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I think <laughs> what you, First clue you know, that we should have the antennas up. <laughs> the accountants are agreeing with it. I think, we're, you know, we're in a period, not again, this goes beyond golf, but certainly in golf, is that, People want straight lines. They see the that we're in the digital era of you know audience behaviours. We all go and we look at Netflix. We look at what Amazon are doing. We look at um, Apple, and we then extrapolate onto that. Well, sport has to fall in line with those big players, and sport is both global, obviously, but it's also very very local, and. There will be a lot of people who will be seriously pissed off if the European tour becomes the PGA tour because it is a separate audience, a separate product. They have very little interest in American golf. You know, it's it's just a, there is something that is worth preserving. Now, whether or not they can pull off the trick or whether they think they can pull off the trick of centralising the commercial side whilst also paying lip service to having two separate tours from a golfing perspective and talking to two different audiences or the, the different audiences i don't know that's that's complete conjecture but it feels like that's that might be what they're what they're attempting i guess one of the points you're making there richard and i think it's the one that probably worries most people and it relates to the last one you made if you go to the office in the pga to a headquarters there at sawgrass in that humble building that they've got and you go to the mergers and acquisitions department somebody's removed the mergers from the from the the window of that office, haven't they? You're right. They don't do working together generally, do they? The PGA Tour. They are an alpha business. But then, you know, if if you're looking at it from purely a you know a, a sort of cold rational perspective, then they would say, well, why should we merge? Well, you know, what's what's in it for us? And I can see there is a there is the audience argument that they want to be relevant beyond the US. And, you know, it's a very American uh, organization and there is a whole world out there. They have, you know, we've talked about this for donkey's years in terms of whether or not, uh, you know, the, the, the PGA Tour's global ambition will ever materialize. And that goes for, for most big US sports as well. 
But we are seeing movements there in other areas. We're seeing the NBA in various places, even the NFL. So it's it's certainly on their agenda. And I can see that this move, I can sort of see it, but it, it still doesn't feel... I'm still what I'm struggling with, as you can probably tell, is trying to work out what the what's in it for for Monaghan. I just I'm trying to get there, and it's normally money and status and and influence. But how does this work for that? I don't know. I I, I get the feeling you're right. I've got, I get the feeling it's almost a toe in the water for Monaghan and those at the PGA Tour about how far they might want to go. They're not going to commit to the whole thing up front. But they can see there might be some role for it down the track, and let's put our toe in the water, see where it might end up. Clates, what's I your think, take the, on all this? Just on just yeah. just on that rod, I do think, uh, as I start as I said at the beginning, this is definitely happening. I don't. Yeah. I think right. that's the the sound, you know, the noise coming back from the people that know more than I do about this is that this is a strategy that they're pursuing. It, it might actually be Clates that this is the only way forward for European golf. The pandemic hit the European Tour particularly hard. The fact that they've got international borders to cross constantly, they couldn't put a schedule together. The expense involved for the players and the tour itself in having that global travelling circus, you don't have any of those issues on the US tour. So they had the advantage in that way, the US tour. But I assume, and I know that you have an allegiance with the European tour because you spent your career playing there. What does it make you think when you hear Richard talk about probably we are taking the first couple of steps towards what will ultimately be a world PGA tour? Yeah, well, and I played through the golden era of the European tour. Seve obviously started 1976 and you know, that incredible group of players, Faldo, Woozy, Lyle, Elizabeth, uh, Langer, committed really to play the European tour and they played a lot of golf on that tour and really made it a great tour. So you know, now none of the best European players play in Europe. They all play in America. They live in America and play in America and that's really hurt the tour a lot. So uh, they expanded out into a- Asia and the Middle East and Australia and South Africa and the pandemic's kind of killed all that off, really. So we've got the Asian tour that hasn't existed for, as far as I can tell for, what, two years now they haven't, haven't played. Uh, a good friend of mine, I won't mention his name, plays the Japanese tour time of the other day. He said the Japanese tour is dying. The women's tour is doing fine, but the Japanese tour is down to around 20 tournaments where it was it was the same size as the US tour almost in 1990 as, as strong the end was and how well that tour was doing they were playing for pretty much the same amount of money so it's a question of what happens not only in Europe but in Asia in Japan in South Africa Australia you know, how does pro golf exist outside the United States now that there's a big audience that only cares about what happens in America. But Richard's right. There's a whole European audience that are not interested in golf in America. No. They, you know, they want to see the German Open and the Spanish Open and they want to see their best players and, and they want to see the Irish Open being the – when I played it was the best tournament in Europe outside of the Open. And that should be a great tournament, but they, you know, for various reasons, it's not quite there now, but – in hindsight, Clates, and I think part of the point you make there is right, is that the European Tour's best players no longer, I mean, and Rory said it blatantly a couple of years ago, it's a stepping stone to the PGA Tour, which mm. didn't, which wasn't the case in the 80s and 90s. Is that maybe the beginning of how we've ended up here? What was the response amongst players when the European Tour started to go beyond Europe? You played a lot more on the continent in the 80s and 90s. You can go weeks and weeks and weeks without touching Europe on the European Tour now. Well, I think 
more than, or certainly before the pandemic, more than half their tournaments were outside of the European, yeah. outside of the European continent. And, you know, bef- way before I started in the sixties, it was a, there was a British tour and a Europe and a continental tour that was separate almost. So merging them was a brilliant idea. And then Seve came along and it took off. And, but I, I think the difference between the modern European player who plays in America and Seve's generation was, I don't think any of those guys enjoyed playing in America that much. Seve didn't enjoy it. I don't think Woozy enjoyed it much. Sandy certainly didn't. Faldo perhaps a little more. But they they much preferred to play in Europe. That was their home and that that was where they wanted to be. They knew they had to be in America to prove themselves to be the best players in the world. But now I think there's a generation of Europeans who would much rather live and be in America because, one, the money's so extraordinary. Florida's not that far away. They can live behind the gated walls and have a pretty nice lifestyle and get lots of world ranking points and pay for lots of money and despite what the American tour says they pay a huge amount of appearance money it just comes at the end of your career not while you're playing Shaq do you need to defend America here no <laughs> have you no. ruined it have you ruined it for everybody no, no. I well I mean there is an optimistic view that yeah. that Jay Monaghan has come to the realization that that it, if they're going to fend off these other interests they have to have a global tour and they have to have a swing in europe in the summer and 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 an asian swing now um with the european tour looking like they're going to lose that uh so that the optimistic view is that that he has that vision i just see nothing that shows he has much vision other than uh the next 20 minutes and trying to sign sponsors and grow more playing opportunities and create another 156 player tournament i mean they actually they actually are contemplating a 156-player tournament the week after the Tour Championship to replace one of the 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 Asian events uh, that they're going to lose. I mean, it's just like how is why don't you just give everybody a week off to reset? And they just have no you have no sense there's a vision beyond the the week ahead because they're just constantly consumed with growing those opportunities for their bonuses. And so I'm not confident that he has a great vision for a world tour but in theory this should be the beginning of that and um i just also think though that what that announcement revealed is that they have now their model has has is not working in certain markets certain times of year i mean the idea that they can't get a sponsor that they've lost their new york stop um, partly because they oversaturated that area with too many events and the other majors did. But the idea that they couldn't save that is is stunning. And then Boston was a successful event and they couldn't save that. So uh, I think there are a lot of signs that they have just overdone everything and they finally have some sponsors saying, no, we're not going to pay that amount of money for, what, for a 1.2 rating when we could get that for a normal event. And that was what happened with Cadillac at, at Doral. They were less bothered by Trump than they were by the price of a WGC event. And then slowly we're down to six, seven companies that can afford that sponsorship um, because it's a really expensive one, as are the playoff events. So he's got his own issues to deal with in terms of their model. And I also don't sense there's any budging on reimagining that they're just going to kind of have these events fall by the wayside so um i don't i don't uh but he doesn't really share much you know that was the first press conference he had had since march so uh and it's a very limited 
invitation list, and so the questions are, are, are limited to certain things, and there were so many uh, topics. I mean, he never got asked about the PIP, the player impact f- uh, program, things like that. So, uh, yeah, it's just hard to get in questions that ask to try to flesh out what that that vision is. And then Pelly, yeah, I just thought Pelly was totally unimpressive. And that, like I said, that Paul McGinley piece felt to me like we better send Paul out because he's more eloquent. Um, I don't know, Clates, did you kind of sense that? I mean, that was just like Derek Lawrence and just said, hi, I'm Derek. <laughs> yeah. Here are quotes from Paul <laughs> yeah. McGinley. Um, yeah. And what did you think, by the way, Clates, of his suggestion that they're going to get more tournaments in Britain? It's almost like what you just discussed. It almost sounds like they're going to be back to having a huge swing in Britain uh, to make up for the loss of of the Asian and possibly even the Dubai event I thought was fascinating, That, which I've wondered about if the Saudis would – be able to to take over the whole Middle East and kill the European Tour's Middle East swing. Uh, I yeah. thought that was interesting that he threw that out. Yeah, and I think a couple of years ago there, w- there was only one tournament in England. The, the PGA was yeah, the only tournament Yeah, and wasn't that in England? tax? Wasn't that off mostly related? <clears throat> well, Richard might know, but yeah. there was that certain yeah, number the- of days you compete in Britain, and if you go over a certain number, you just get taxed. In some hideous amount of money where you're just going to lose Sergio going to be out of there the was a, Yeah, Sergio, that and, springs to mind, yeah. And I know that So Young Yu played twice there and got like a $70,000, no, maybe more, tax bill because she played twice there and it was just... It seems like they've done the something... The she made to the bushfire fund over here, Australia, <laughs> Australia So Young, that's yeah, brutal, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, well, that's all. Richard, I want to ask you something that... Sort of Shaq mentioned there, and you touched on this in other sports. You had a fascinating guy who I think was the architect of the Champions League, if I'm not mistaken, talking about this notion of just, well, this tournament's popular or this match is popular, so let's just have more of those, and that'll just automatically be a success. And it's a flawed idea, isn't it? This notion, as Jeff says, okay, well, we lost a tournament off the schedule, let's immediately replace it with another one. Doesn't necessarily fly as a business idea, does it? Well, I guess if you were with all these sports if you were you wouldn't start where you are today so you know if you were starting professional golf you you would probably you know go along the lines of what the premier league idea is you know that if if people want the the best versus the best which is a sort of the the the, the line that keeps coming back across sport this is what the super league in football was all about it was you know and you can see that in tennis, for example, which is also you know a, a one that's relevant to golf in terms of its shape, um, you've got money going into tennis. CVC now, you know, creating a new entity which looks like it's going to house the sort of commercial rights of both the ATP and the WTA, and the CVC would hold a minority in- interest. So that's private equity looking at tennis and saying, okay, there is a there's a business here, we can make money. Um, now, what the implications of that sort of investment are, are a little bit up in the air. But you can see that CVC made $15 billion from Formula One. So it's going into rugby, it's looking at football, and it's tempting to think that actually they look at things through the lens of Formula One. So if you said, right, okay, if and Formula One, quite often when you hear people talk about Formula One, they say well, it's the perfect business model. It's it's global. There is about there's a manageable number of events. There's a small number of teams and, and stars. 
and away you go. That's a series. That's what sport should look like from a from a corporate perspective. That's why there's a lot of money in America that's that's look you know trying to invest in NFL teams, NBA teams, MLS teams because there is cost control on wages. There is uh, no relegation, so you've got no business risk. You have to be a pretty bad businessman to lose money in those leagues. So, oh, and we learned when you, the, the tax implications recently are incredible as well. Go on, sorry. <laughs> I think that that so in terms of of when you then transpose that sort of thinking, and then you've got things like trends like the audience age and assumed behaviors about how we want to watch and consume sport as we go through you can sort of very quickly get to a fairly easy you know it's not um particularly smart but you just think well, okay it's going to look a little bit like formula one or it's going to look a little bit like the nfl there's you're going to throw in some uh you know you would put betting at the center of the business because that's an enormous uh, industry which wants to spend fortunes in sport because it, it's they are actively trying to turn uh, the vast majority of people who aren't betting on sport into betters. So that's a huge market for them. So if you then start to look at golf through that lens, you do end up in the place that we're you know that, that the so-called disruptors are in. So it's just a it's. Now, real life isn't like that. Private equity likes straight lines. It likes centralised processes. It assumes that money will solve all problems. And sport is irritatingly not like that quite often. And fans get in the way. But you can see that that's the environment that, you know, when Jay Monaghan starts to think about or Keith Pelley starts to think about the next 10 years of, of golf at the top level, he's thinking, well, I've got a problem here because I've got a membership and most of them don't sell tickets for me or they don't sell tv rights and they don't sell sponsorships there's a very very small fraction and this has always been the case back to you know mike talking about Seve and and faldo and that generation of europeans Jack, they I were gold Gary dust because they sold tickets and they sold you know sponsorships mm-hmm. is this partly richard is what we're seeing and i'm this is probably across all sports and golf will have to find its place in there we know golf is so much different to so many sports in so many ways including the business of golf and professional golf but is this what we're seeing with sports that have started or been seeded in certain parts of the world growing into this global kind of pursuit are you going to naturally bump up against these issues as because you kind of can't contain business, can you? If it's not growing, it falls over. It's like riding a bike. As soon as you stop, you fall over. So even if you're wobbling, as long as you're moving, you're okay. Is that part of what we're seeing here? And, and are you seeing correlations of what we're talking about here with golf across other sports and the business side of sports, other sports? Yeah, I think there's a there's a an assumption which I don't actually agree with. I question some of the assumptions about behaviours and you know the 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 some of the idiocy about young people's viewing habits you know that, that that they don't like concentrating for more than you know the length of a football match or the length of a that's just you know we know it's nonsense but it's that that still pervades thinking so you know you're shortening and simplifying complex sports there's there's the other bit is globalization there is a strong argument to say that sport is inherently local it's it's my team versus your team down the road. It matters much, much more than than um, what's happening 
at the top end, you know, if Man United playing Barcelona, if that happens every week, then it's it's tedious. So was that football Super League failure, spectacular failure? It looked to be from the outside. I don't pretend to understand anything about English football, but was that spectacular failure? Is that what's that? That's what that was about, wasn't it? Yeah, that's the again the same themes were at play. It was driven by mainly the Spanish and Italian clubs um, losing fortunes, you know, over a period of time, and they were they were desperately trying to um, make some money back. They're huge, carrying huge debts, run terribly badly. Um, the surprising bit was the Premier League English Premier League teams went with them, which was again a really stupid decision. It collapsed in 48 hours. Um, but it's something that, that you can see, again, the same themes are at play. Best v best, you know, the assumed globalisation of sport. These are all things that business and marketing people think about. They're not things that sports fans think about no. very much. No. We, we watch the golf, don't we, Clades? And we watch the shots and the big important putts and the moments and the, all those things that make you play golf in the first place and aspire to be a pro and practice on the putting green. That's the product. So where do the players fit in all of this? I imagine it's changed over the years, but what sort of voice did players have on the European Tour when you played it? Uh, and I imagine certain players' voices were heard much more clearly than others at times. I, I think the only players Ken Schofield cared about were the ones Richard mentioned. I mean, he, they pay lip service to there's a player meeting and everyone turns up, but he, you know, and the players would get annoyed. But the reality was that there were only six players who sold tickets and TV rights, and they were the only ones he cared about. And that was absolutely, when you look at it, when you look back on it, of course that was the right thing to do. Why would you care about Mike Clayton or? You know, Richard Boxall or Richard Lee or Peter Fowler. Just we were just tagging along for the ride, hmm. and, and 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 being thankful we were on the ride. Yeah, and do players as a group do you think give much thought to the business of the golf, or is it just a week to week proposition? The the day job is to go and play golf and let the tour think about what the tour yeah, might look like in ten years. Yeah, I don't think they they care about petty things, and they don't you know, have a much of an understanding of how the whole thing works or when you're a player you're you're at the center of your own world and that's all you care about and and the the tour is there to make sure you can exist and survive is that explain some of the pressure you talked about earlier jeff this notion of constantly having more tournaments and i know that it's easy to look and say well it's good for the pga tour execs because they get the bonuses from it but does a lot of that come from the rank and file players as well they want somewhere to play every week so there's an opportunity to make some more money yeah the question is why do they keep worrying about the needs of 100 to 150 and that's something that the premier league people with their concept uh were targeting and i continue to ask that question um just you know you look at the effort they made to to get the european players those two starts in the united states in in kentucky and in in rural california outside of reno nevada um, and you you say, wow, they went to a lot of effort for European tour players who are outside of their top sixty, and and this just gets back to this fundamental issue that 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 golf has is it's building so many things around these people who don't sell tickets. Though, as you know, I think we were about to touch on there, uh, how many how many golfers really? sell tickets now uh, with Tiger and seven. Phil. It's not I many. It's seven or eight. <laughs> I honestly think it's seven or eight. You, that you, said, you struggle to get to ten. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. And I don't – Rory's now kind of a part-time 
vice commissioner, and so I don't know how much he's going to be drawing people in, or if he ever did. I, I've always kind of sensed he was slightly overrated in his ability to draw an audience in the United States versus um, certainly different in Europe. So that's the mystery in all of this is why are we <clears throat> or why are they so consumed with these and I'm not going to call them bottom feeders because that's that's not right because you have to have places to develop players. We know this is a tough sport and 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 we have this bizarre and 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 uh, Richard I believe touched on this in a uh, in one of the newsletters about our society's bizarre infatuation with potential um, and this, which I, I just think is completely out of control. You guys don't see it as much here in the United States, but we have, I mean, it's really creepy how much people are obsessed with um, the next thing. You know, I mean, look at the Will Zalatoris uh, infatuation mm-hmm. here. But I mean, in the United States, the NBA draft, the NFL draft, they get bigger audiences than a playoff game in those sports, which I, I is just, you know, mind-boggling. And we have this whole world wants to know where people are going to go to college to play a sport. Then once they get to the sport, that's less interesting to people. So as a business, you do need to be aware of that and developing the next stars and giving them opportunities and giving people who are into that world a chance to follow them and to build a, a loyalty. But you also can't make them the focus, and it almost feels like at times that's the case. And it, it to me, it's why golf just feels like it's um, it's just there's just too much of it, and it's watered down. And and even the Olympic format was built around uh, getting uh, a, a, a Didi Ashok in the in the tournament, which was great in both Rio and in Tokyo. She that's amazing what she did for golf in India, and and uh, a wonderful story. But the Olympic golf still stinks. It's it's boring. It's flat. It's <laughs> lacking something. And so the focus was on this trying to grow the game and get that next p- person with potential to watch. But is it um, is that really what you build the whole thing around? I don't I don't know. Is that Richard? I am correct. I did read that in the uh, unofficial partner newsletter, right? About potential. Or did I hear that? Yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, thank you for the uh, for for the for the. <laughs> no, I really. Yeah, it no. was really profound. That word potential, really, because I've struggled with this, and a lot of people in the United States, in particular, have struggled with this obsession with the next thing versus the great thing right before us. <laughs> <laughs> it was there was a the, what kicked it off with there is a stat that the as you mentioned the NBA draft gets twice as many viewers as the average nationally televised game. So it's it, which what is, is that about? Which it's is bizarre? It's potential, Rod. It's potential. We're living through them or something. But it's not. It's not a. But that's not a visual sport, is it? <laughs> Watching well, people. It's, yeah, the guys wear a suit and it's they're cashing in. It's bling. It's they're, yeah. they're hugging the. Com- I mean, now Roger Goodell in the NFL, he gives them like these embarrassing bear hugs. It's really creepy uh, on the NFL one. But it's it's that, and and I think it's also that like people dream about. Being a part of the support system of these players now, where we used to find that creepy, the tennis dads, and now the team around the people, this is their moment as well. And there's a, we see that in golf with caddies and coaches, and now it's we, and, and what a great victory for them. You know? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, to me, it's getting out of control. But Traveling anyway. with a chef, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, Two, sorry, Clytes, go. I guess that was a massive change in the tour in 1982, I think, Jeff, when it went away from the top 60, when it really 
became as Gary McCord's vision of yep. creating a, a tour of 125. And I know, you know, Tom Watson and, and the top players were really against that. And as an average player myself, I thought it was it was a pretty nice, <laughs> secure um, position. <laughs> that 70 to 80 bracket, it was a great idea. Because <laughs> yes. I played in Europe for a couple of years when it was top 60. But it, it, it was a much more difficult and, and, and much – it was a different system. And arguably, having had – 40 years of top 60 and 40 years of top 125, the top 60 system was perhaps it created more stars. And the, and the tour wasn't so focused on, you know, 100 to 150. Well, it fixes entitlement, doesn't it? It fixes an awful yeah. lot of entitlement, when the, the less positions that are guaranteed. Uh, is there another sport, Richard, that has so many of the lunatics in charge of the asylum as golf? And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but Jeff is absolutely right in what he's laid out there. The rest of the field is absolutely crucial in a golf tournament because the stars need people to beat. And sometimes the best stories come from those that you haven't heard of and they're contending that week because they can all play and any one of them can bob up at any time and give you a great story. But ultimately, is there an issue there for golf with the wrong people driving some of these decisions or applying pressure that leads to decisions to keep them sort of happy? I think Nicholas was always anti the top 125 he said it breeds mediocrity yeah there was a there was a sort of i remember around the Ryder cup wasn't there he was concerned when they lost in in what was it, it must have been 87 when they, when they lost it in ohio yeah, at nicholas's course, yeah. yes and he he started blaming and palmer got on this as well around about that time when they were talking about as you say, they were blaming mediocrity. They were saying that the thread was that the Europeans had to win to get into the team, which has always been Faudo's thing. Faudo always said, you know, to make a decent, a good living, he ha- you have to win. You have to win, yeah. Um, and Nicholas started sort of uh, talking about that in terms of people getting onto the Ryder Cup team, having never won a tournament that year, but just making, you know, making a big... Um, a good showing. So I suppose that's always, always been there, but there is always the, in some ways you sort of think golf, when you compare it to, you know, European football, if you want basket cases, that's, that's, you know, the case de jure. It's just a, it's just out of control. Um, And we've just had an Olympics where people sit down and watch, you know, BMX riding over here has been this thing because we had a, you know, someone lived in a council estate and got through to the Olympic team, you know, and and that became a big story and there's a lot of warmth there. Now, whether that warmth for for BMX is going to sustain is deeply questionable, but that's where you sort of think, well, sport and the television of televising sport is incredibly powerful. And sometimes you think, well, actually why am I watching this golf tournament and am I watching it because the stars are there sometimes I'm not you know that bothered about that but I just want to watch golf and I want to be entertained I want to look at the players how they're playing I want to learn something all of you know I think we watch sport for lots of different reasons Mm. one of them might be to see the best versus the best Federer versus Nadal Wimbledon final um, going at each other Yes, of course, that's an outstanding moment in, you know, sport. But that's not everything, and it's it's an incredibly reductive way of looking at 
the role sport plays. It, I agree with that, and I agree with that. And as the fan experience, I'm not sure we even ever articulate this or think about it consciously. But I feel like one of the problems with the Premier Golf League idea was that the, just the assumption that what we want is the best against the best every week. If you have that, you take away anything special. Federer and Nadal in an exhibition match is not Federer and Nadal in a Wimbledon final. They're playing for something important as opposed to just playing. And I'm not sure that that's been factored into what it is. And I think you're right about the assumptions we make that people will just flock to watch the top 50 players in the world play against each other 18 times. Yeah, I'm not convinced that that's necessarily the case. Well, there's but, there's the, the other worrying, well, not worrying, but the other it is worrying from my perspective is that actually sport, if you, if you talk to Jay Monaghan and his and Keith Pelley and their equivalents in every sports governing body, or, you know, in any sport, they are focused not on core fans. They are focused on big eventers. Yeah. So they're yeah. people who have a marginal passing interest in golf. And every sport is targeting them because that's who they want to get to their event, you know, their, their events. And that's who they want to sell tickets to. And increasingly that's who is going to be buying the tickets, you know? So, that changes things, I think, on a fundamental level, because actually those people are going for the experience of being at a sports event. They're not going to, to watch uh, the sport in any great detail. The sport is the, the context and the experience is what they're yeah, there for. It, it's an event, whether it be a golf tournament, a tennis yeah. match or a footy game. <laughs> the event is what sort of you can put whatever product you want in the middle. So if, you, if, you, if you extend that for a moment, you start to say, well, actually, so the difference between the Open, Wimbledon, an NBA game, the Australian Open, is the quality of the experience rather than the quality of the sport, then I think we're in trouble because actually you're, you're moving into, into sport as entertainment rather than sport. And sport can be entertaining, but I always worry when people start to say this sport is entertainment takes the cart and puts it just ahead of the horse a bit too much, doesn't it, if you're not careful? Of course, the other thing that happens when you do that, Clates, when you start to think about it as an event and you don't focus on the core fans and you look for these outside, you start to alienate, don't you, the the existing fans. And so we see in our bubble on Twitter lots and lots of anti-PGA Tour sentiment from outside the United States. And I wonder whether that plays into any sort of, a th- any sort of thing. And it's not hard to see why. Yeah, well, and they, you know, in our Twitter world, there are lots of people who, deplore the uninteresting golf courses they play on often and um yeah and Richard's right about you know the, the Australian Open tennis for lots of people who go to the tennis who never see a tennis ball hit yeah and I'm not sure that's the case in golf so much I, I think the golf's got a more educated fan base yeah. generally speaking yeah. than most particularly amongst the core fans mm. and the core is quite big how would you rate the core international audience for golf, Richard, versus perhaps other sports. To me, it would feel like it's pretty – because there's such a high participation element to it, most people watching golf play golf. don't know. It would be interesting to test that theory, wouldn't it? I, don't, mm. I think that would depend. If you go to a Ryder Cup, that's different than the PGA. The PGA is, is you know, there's a lot of people there that wouldn't be rushing to pick up a golf club when they get home. At Wentworth you're talking about? Yeah. Or PGA in America. Yeah, no, no, I see it. Jeff Shackleford, if we took the lens and we went 10 years out from now or 15 years out from now, 
what would golf ideally look like, do you think? It's not to say where we're going to end up, but is this the first step towards something that would make sense for golf, what we're seeing with the PGA Tour and the European Tour? Yeah, I think if if they're if if they have uh, a view where they're 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 open to golf being played around the world more, I do think it's a great first step. I just don't have great confidence that that's the that's mindset of most American golfers uh, and the executives who uh, run the tour. I don't who cater to them. I don't think they sense how much. Uh, how important that is. We saw that with the PGA Championships opportunity. And I, yeah, I mean, just look at some of the comments this year about the players who uh, are so glad they played the Scottish Open the week before. Like, well, no kidding. I mean, that, <laughs> uh, and I don't mean that in a condescending way towards Colin Morikawa, but uh, it, it, you heard several players say that was, that they learned that. Well, we've kind of known that for a while, that it's a good idea to get over there and get acclimated and play. And, um, it's good for you to be seen around the world by other people besides Americans. So they're just in, in their own little, their own little bubble. And I, so that's why I don't have great hope that there's a, a world vision. It just feels like it's more about, uh, maintaining current deals and maintaining the generals, uh, structure but getting some more money and getting a few more things to and ways like the player impact fund to uh to to stave off these other uh interests so i wish i i could be more optimistic but i i've seen enough of it i just don't really grasp uh i've just had an idea that there. hopefully jay is listening but richard tell me if this would fly mm-hmm. we can see the sense of the notion of the Premier Golf League and the other Saudi league. We can understand what drives the interest of that. This, this has got a lot of positives about it. Why wouldn't you just have PGA Tour Premium? It's PGA Tour. It's a premium product. Certain level of players get to play in these. And you could do something with that that would, in fact, embrace the world. The Australian Open would be one of those events, the great historic events. The Canadian Open would be a part of that PGA Tour Premium. Some of the great European Opens, some of the Asian Opens. As a business idea, might that be a better response by the PGA Tour than the notion of what looks to have happened where the two biggest forces in the game are joining forces to stave off this disruptive influence? What you mean, sort of turning the PGA Tour into a version of the Premier League? Kind of, and you kind of have a promotion and relegation thing, but there's only, a bit like the WGCs, but actual yeah, the Rolex GCs yeah. in as in, yes, you have these seven or eight events that the top would ever qualify for, uh, and then those those same players still play in all the other tournaments that they want to in the regular schedule, if you like, but, but and and satisfy that hunger that the Premier Golf League is targeting. So, Rod, what are those? Are they the one thousand tournaments in tennis? Is that what they call them, or the Masters series? Yeah, 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 much, yeah, yeah, you know, Madrid and Rome and you know, Cincinnati, and you, probably. And with the PGA Tour and the European Tour together, perhaps that's what you can create, Richard. Might that be at the back of the thinking, or are we giving too much credence for vision, well, visionariness to the to those who run the professional game? Well, one of the things, you know, those those who run the professional game, they are coming at it from different places. There isn't one mm. group that has got the whole game. You know, you could argue the RNA has has got a global sort of perspective to an extent, but you know, because when we look at the golf season you've obviously start with the majors and there is a there is a premier group of tournaments there already and you know it's a market you know, it, what you're talking about there is really a marketing conceit to wrap 
around mm-hmm. the majors, the WGCs, and who you know, if the WGCs lived up to their name, mm-hmm. then you're sort of halfway there. And if you then had the Australian Open plus you know a Japan event, a whatever, if it wasn't just so US centric, you mm-hmm. could start to build something interesting that had genuine global appeal and start to then service lots of constituencies beyond the PGA tours. The problem is, is that Jay Monahan, that's not his job. And if he started to do that, he would get sacked fairly sharpish. So that's a problem. And it's always been a problem because there isn't anyone, you know, we all like straight lines and pyramids sometimes. And we think, well, actually, if there was someone sitting atop this, a Bernie Eccleston, go back to Formula One as an example, what he did brilliantly and what the Olympics did very well, actually, was to centralise lots of different things and and create one place for um, people to sort of gather around. But it was, that's, I can't see that working in golf and so whatever the premier league does if it comes in and it comes and goes or whatever yes there's a demand for that sort of entertainment product potentially but it still ignores the fact that of relevance because we know that winning the masters the open us open is going to be worth far more than uh, what whatever they can conjure up Interesting. You know, the less, surely the lesson of the fedex cup is that money no, doesn't, doesn't trump doesn't, doesn't trump do. history do the job. But is that guaranteed? Oh, just to go on a rabbit hole. Are you convinced that the lure and the prestige of the Masters, the Open, the US Open and the PGA possibly to a lesser extent is sacrosanct or might we see a generational change amongst players if it came to it where those tournaments would be seen as less important? I don't think they're as solid as I once thought they were as a given. If there was a huge rift between the manufacturers, the USGA and the RNA, and they said, right, that's it, we're going to make our own equipment, we're not playing by the USGA rules anymore. How long before you had professional golf replace those majors with something else and how long to convince the next generation of players that the British Open's not that important? You're much better to play the Players' Championship. I think that, well, never say never, but I think there's a, if that happened... The, you know, again, we come back and we've used this cliche before, but, you know, bundle and unbundle. Once you start to then move in one direction, the opportunities in the other direction. And if, you know, I just think that the, the majors are just pretty much, the, you know, in, in, at, at the centre of the game. And I can't see... That. The, the, the problem with conjecture in golf is that the players are too rich. You could have this conversation in rugby. You could have this conversation in in other sports. But um, you know, it's Kerry Packer. Explo- you know, created something in cricket because the players were underplayed. Tony Gregg had to pay to play in the seventy seven centenary Test. You know, he had to pay for his own family to go out there, and there was pain on the players' side because they were undervalued. You know, playing in front of a hundred thousand people and not getting enough money. That ain't the case in golf, mm. and. To uh, Mike's point earlier, they're in Florida trying to get them. To, you know, one of the problems the Premier Golf Tour has got is trying to get them mm. to go to an event that they don't want to go to. Yeah, 
Indeed. You're nowhere near pessimistic enough for a daily newspaper hack, Gillis. I thought you'd be on board with me there and that we could de deconstruct the entire thing in a matter of minutes, but I think you've uh, – or as always, when I disagree with you, I've come out on the wrong side of it, Clates. I was going to say, is the time to just forget – for the rest of the world to – I mean, it's so hard to pull Japan and Asia and South Africa and Australia and Europe together, but is it time to forget about America, forget about the – top players in America now from outside of America, the foreigners, you know, Smith and Leishman and Rory and Poulter and Rose and Rahm, and create one great world tour outside of America. Just, just forget about them. Go to Japan, go to Asia, Australia, South Africa, Europe, and it's drag feasible. 40 great tournaments together. Well, it needs a lot of money, but I think it would be an amazing tour. Certainly in 20 years it would be incredible. If you, if you could raise enough money to convince the stars that would inevitably come not to go to America but to create, but to play one great world tour outside of America, so just which is essentially what Formula One is, right? Isn't that what Formula One is? Premier Golf League with the difference is what you're talking about there. <laughs> it yeah. might look more well, like European, traditional golf in the size of the fields. but Yeah, the European Tour had that chance with the Premier League group yeah. to, to, to do that, yeah. essentially, uh, although that group really wanted American players, obviously, and, and multiple stops in the United States. Do you think there was an actual decision, Jeff, that Keith Pelley faced, a moment where he said, I yeah. have to decide whether I'm going to side with the Premier Golf League or the PGA Tour? Do you think that moment yes. came? Oh, it definitely came? came. I think that was even admitted, uh, if not directly, indirectly. And, uh, yeah, he, he chose to go the direction he went in, and I, I think it will be uh, I think it'll be fatal at some point, either for his job or, or the, so the name of the European Tour. Do you think the wrong decision or the right decision? Uh, it's a tough a one, but I, I think it's a wrong decision. Yeah, I think he he had a chance to uh, reimagine the European tour in a way, and 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 obviously there's so many other factors now: the pandemic mm. and um, sponsorship going in different directions. I mean, Rolex is is really showing they want to be in on the major championships. They don't really want to do the Rolex series anymore. Um, the, the who's who's a star, who's not. Um, just uh, there are any number of factors that are working against him. So I do have some empathy, but I uh, I think as Richard said, if you were to start it now, start from scratch, you would start with something that that has something more like the what they've proposed with some some tweaks and the the team component and and all that and. Um, Richard, right or wrong decision, as Sheikh said there, but uh, from the context of Pelly coming from outside of golf, which I think makes that interesting, he's not tied to some of the things we've just talked about with the importance of the majors and the history and the traditions and the things that have drawn us to the game. He came from, was it ice hockey he came from or something crazy like that? So golf's not his background. So a lot of those sorts of things he would think differently about. In all of that context, does that mean he might have made a more measured decision or do you think he's made the right or wrong decision? Were it a straight up decision? Well, I mean, it's a good question, actually, in terms of, of you know, what George O'Grady would have done. Yeah. And would, that, would he have made a different decision? You know, would, and it's... And where, where the power lies, not just the commercial power. So Pelly came in as the guy that... The, the transformer, the disruptor himself. He was going to go into Wentworth and change things, and he has done, and he's done a lot of good things. There is a uh, he was. It was based on he is the change against you know the Schofield O'Grady 
years that that were seen to be out of time or out of you know that the, they'd run its course and that it needed to be modernized and and i'm sure all of that is true you've got guy kinnings in there. there's also an interesting mm-hmm. figure yeah. in all this so and he obviously comes from a from a very you know a nakedly commercial perspective having run golf for img for years and was monty's agent and was was you know a a a major player in golf um on the commercial side you've got to i i wonder what whether or not he who is far more of a golf person i wonder what that conversation was like and where killing kinnings sits on that i've never asked him but it's, a, it's an interesting well, question. I wonder whether he'd answer you. You don't get to where he is by answering John. Oh, yeah, he doesn't answer Richard, questions. So yeah. it'd, be, it'd be a fabulous question. I'm not sure the answer would necessarily live up to it, which also makes you wonder, Clates, about the position of people like McGinley, Thomas Bjorn, some of those European tour stalwarts who are at a part of that engine that drives the European tour, how much consultation with them and how they might have responded. to Thomas Bjorn feels rusted on European tour. Perhaps they were convinced that, joining with the US is the way to go. Yeah, and I know that, well, I've spoken to McGinley a little bit and he said, you know, there were some billionaires on the board of the tour who are not going to let the tour sink. So it'd be interesting to see what his perspective on that is now. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming Johan Rupert is still, I'm not sure if he's on the board, but I'm assuming he's still pretty... Could be if com- he wanted to be. ...committed. <laughs> well, sure. well, well he, could, he could create the Premier League himself if he wanted to, but, yeah. you know, and... Is Guy Kennings the next boss of the European Tour? Are we assuming that? Well, that, I mean, I guess that's where you'd let you know lay your money. I, I I don't know. I mean, I think there's a there's a um, <laughs> it's it's. I think you're right in that there is a body. When you think of this through the lens of the Ryder Cup, and you think of people like mm-hmm. Torrance and McGinley and that generation, Harrington, even you know that they are. Very, very, you know, pro that they just sort of the embodiment or the the idea of the European tour is very important and it's very important to people. Um, So whatever the sort of, as we said before, whether it's just a commercial arrangement, which people don't really give a toss about, but if it starts to impact on things that they care about, um then it start that's what happened with the super league you started they started to fuck about with things that people cared about it, it moved from being just paper talk about business to actually mucking up the premier league or your team in the same way as you know private equity coming into rugby there is a chance that the british lions will disappear you know Oof. unless someone makes a decision to stop that and People will suddenly turn around at that point. They say, hang on a minute. I didn't realise that was along on the line. And I'm sure that in golf, people start, you know, people don't, as you say, they release this during the Olympics. No one was looking at a press release from the European tour during the Olympics. If it suddenly turns around and says, well, actually, no, the European tour isn't anymore and we're moving to the States and it's all become centralised. All of those conversations that sometimes... you can have conversations in corridors or in in boardrooms or marketing rooms, and then they hit real life and they just dis- disappear. That happened to the Super League in forty eight hours. It was a marketing plan that that suddenly met 
real life and it just fell apart. Quite. Um, what was I going to say? But I can't remember now. Anyway, uh, what about women in all of this? Jeff Shackelford, start with that. The Premier League, to their credit, has at least some acknowledgement that women's golf exists and plans this notion of two. They haven't fleshed it out. It doesn't seem like it's particularly well thought. It's been tacked on. But uh, is that a concern? Is there's been, And to f- the fact that they announced this during the Women's Olympic competition was at best rude. Yeah, it was rude. Worse, deliberately um, unnecessarily malicious. Well, it's tough to find an opening sometimes to do these announcements, and so uh, I think there's hardly any tournaments where you could do. Well, they felt like like that. This was the World Golf Championship, (laughs) and I I don't know why they didn't do it uh, the week after the the Open Championship. But I guess they just felt like this was the that was the time to do it. Um, But yeah, the women were really neglected. It seems like in the the new TV deal, the. Mike Wan kind of handed that over to the the PGA Tour, and it's hard to to get a sense. But I I feel like the women would actually be the place maybe for one of these organizations to start with their concept, not the Saudis, obviously, for a number of reasons. (laughs) Um, Yes. But the the group that that is doing the Premier Golf League, not the the Super Golf League, Mm -hmm. I think think that might be a way to to show uh, how to do this and the, the team concept and... Um and, and have a more international tour, and I, I think it'd be fascinating to see if they would they would go that route. I just think there is a bigger splash and a corporate infusion that comes with getting some of the big names. But again, things have changed drastically on that as well because now luring Tiger and Phil is is almost just not that important at all. Whereas a year and a half, two years ago, that was everything to them. What's the um, option now? Is it? An amazing Jeff. change in, in fortunes. And then, of course, you look at the, who the great players were, and we I know we've had this conversation uh, about this topic, but you just look at some of the people they, you know, Justin Rose and Henrik Stenson, are they are they starting to be people who are kind of past their window that they would make a difference in a concept like that? And so that is the one issue that, that all of them face is this, this rapid turnover in golf and and it's happening more quickly, I believe, because of, of the equipment and the money and, and the lack of incentive to to have a long career and the injuries, of course, all those all those factors. So, uh, Speaking of just – I just had a look when we were chatting earlier. I called up the career money list, which I do from time to time just to upset mm. myself. 50th on the career money list, Nick Watney, $27,684,000. Yeah. He's had a nice run. Nick, good player, well done. Uh, but really, is and then he's uh, and don't forget the if he's made 150 cuts, the the pension is is even more incredible. Well, but, uh, to go on a tangent, Peter Lonard, who Clates is very familiar with, played a few years in Europe. Good player, Peter, one of our really good Australian players, won the Australian Open a couple of times, won all of our tournaments down here, and performed really well on the world stage. I interviewed him for another podcast I do called The Thing About Golf, in depth interview show, and he told me I can't remember if it was on air offer, but he told me that he got this. Letter in the mail one day from the PGA Tour at his home in Sydney, and he opened it up. It was a check, quite a big check. You know, what's this about? And he, he wrote off them and said, I just got this check. What's this about? And they said, Oh, that's your pension. He said, Oh, right. I, actually, I thought it'd be more than that. And they said, No, no, you'll get this every month now for the rest of your life. He <laughs> was like, Really? It's like, Yeah, crazy amount of money. He said, You couldn't believe He said, Well, great. I'll go buy a car, a car a month if I need to. For just amazing. The, uh, the pension and all of that system. Last thing I want to finish because we've been going for too long here, Richard. We brought up women's golf. Let's get away from just the PGA Tour and the European Tour. 
is what Jeff says. I think he's got some merit in that. Is women's golf a better potential return on investment than men's golf? It's cheaper to buy into, but you get a better return on that investment. Does FedEx get the return on investment for what they pump into men's golf? And let's just take the WGC alone, leave aside the FedEx Cup. For what, is, what does that cost, Rich, uh, Jeff? A FedEx Cup uh, WGC event? What's it cost the sponsor? 15 mil? I think, it's a, I think mil? the whole week is probably 20. 20 million? I've heard 20 for Dell and Austin. Uh, that may be a little bit different because the course is more expensive to rent and things like that. But let's, it's in that, it's in that 18 to 20 cost. The tour yeah. charges you for their championship management. And, and you, we can't watch it in Australia. We've got to sign up for a separate pay TV service if we want to. So I didn't see a shot of the Fed, the WGC FedEx at Memphis. So return on investment, women's golf, and where it might fit into all this. Is there actually a, an opportunity here for the LPGA, Richard, with all of this turmoil happening in men's golf? Might they sneak in would be the wrong term, but is there an opportunity for them there because they're already a global tour, obviously? Yeah, okay. I, I, am, I'm in, I have been for a long time incredibly bullish on women's golf, and I think that – it's nothing to do with the men's game particularly. Um, it's not by by comparison. I think um, the I mean women's sport across the board is is growing rapidly in terms of of the both the media's treatment of it is better. Its profile is better. There's more of it. It's more easily accessible, and it is a different product. And they're getting that right. And we're getting, you know, we're we're in a moment over here in cricket where we've got the hundred has launched, which is a, you know, we can uh, won't go into the the toss about whether the world needed another format of cricket, but what it has done is created a window, free free to air window for women's cricket, and they are building teams and they are building fan bases around women's cricket. Same with women's football, women's Super League over here is gaining real traction. It's on Sky, it's on the BBC, it's on YouTube. They've just done deal with his own, and it's a good product. The product product. is good, yeah. And golf is the same. And to answer your question, very simply, yes, it's it's absolutely. The Olympics is one of the great missed opportunities, you know, in terms of women's golf. uh, Generally, you know, why they didn't have a mixed team event still beggars belief. Why you know they went the tedious route that they did. Um, I think it, it is absolutely going to grow uh i think very quickly i'm really i say i'm really bullish on it the rest is just politics people there is a there is an appetite there is an audience for it it's it's a different audience possibly less tribal than men's sport um but i think it's there and it's real and it's for the first time in many years supported by the way in which we watch sport people are finding it enjoying it i think yes is the answer there is a there is definitely a return on investment in women's golf. We haven't even touched on the notion of the ability to watch sports and the loss of power of the big TV networks around the globe, Richard, in the sense that anyone can broadcast their own tournament should they want to these days. There's an expense to it, but you can make it available should you want to. You're no longer at the beck and call of media conglomerates as to whether they put the well, sport Well, just one on thing on, on, you know, Keith Pelly decisions. Um, the Ladies' European Tour was a decision I think you know that didn't happen and uh, it didn't happen because of of more on the uh, LET side I think but there is a opportunity there because the Ladies European Tour is is again is a 
potentially really great product, but it's just completely, you know, um, underfunded. Resourced. It's just under-resourced. They come here every year to Australia, play five or six tournaments in regional places around you. They're fantastic events. The support on the ground is extraordinary. That's really back to the beginnings of sort of the PGA Tour. Go to small markets, build a fan base at, at that point. And it's fantastic. The atmosphere is terrific. The players are fantastic. You get so much less of the entitled nonsense from you the do. women. And the product, you know, the actual product is really oh. good. That I really enjoy watching. It makes more sense to me watching women's go than it does Dustin Johnson hitting four hundred yards and wedges into par fives. That I can't relate to that. It's like a circus. I, I find, you know, I find it much more interesting to watch women's. I thought golf. so too. Thought so too. Till I went and watched Steph Kiriakou tear apart Bonville Golf Club last year, Richard, and that didn't make much sense to me either. Not because of the distances she hit it, but just the extraordinary skill in all elements of the game, uh, fabulous to watch. So um, really interesting. So nice to end on, a, on an upbeat note. Clates, you've got oh, something no, no, to say? No, no, I'm not going to let us do that. But go ahead, Clates. <laughs> we haven't barely mentioned the distances. Yes, that's what I've got. I've got I've got something. Go ahead, Clates. People are thirsty. We better get yeah, on. Yeah, we've got to help yeah. them with the drinking. I mean, this is <laughs> yeah, right. rude. Dare I, say it's, dare I say it's a pity she wasn't the only person who didn't tear apart Bonville Golf Course, but I won't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um the Japanese women's tour is, almost, I think, as big as the men's tour in Japan now, and incredibly popular. Same in Korea. Well, so also uh, in Korea, the, yeah. South, the women's tour in Korea is enormous. I think the Japanese women play for as much money as the men, but they play more tournaments, and it's incredibly popular. So it goes to what Richard was saying about there's absolutely a market for great women's golf because the women understand that for their sport to survive and thrive, they have to turn up. Yeah. Whereas the men don't have to turn up. Tiger never t- Tiger turned up minimum times, and everyone got rich on the back of Tiger. But the best women players understand that for that tour to survive, they've all got to turn up and support it and play, and and they're great at it. When they're fantastic, the women. And if our plan comes to fruition, we'll get to a point where they won't have to turn up either, and we'll have the same complaints about the top women players that we do about, that we yeah, do about yeah, the blokes. Yeah. Players. That's the yeah. that's the ultimate uh, ending of what we're trying to get started there. Uh, Shaq. Uh, so I. Uh I, I have the U.S. Amateur on. It, it, it pissed rain yesterday. It, they just yeah. they're delayed again. They got horrible downpours again today. So Oakmont uh, Clates is playing. It's just a sponge. And <laughs> I look up, and there's a, a young man. His name is Ross Steelman. I don't know. Uh, I don't know anything about him. He's playing Louis uh, Dubillar from Australia. Louis Dubillar. Louis Dubillar. Who, who, whose caddy is Ash Barty's boyfriend. Caddy I'm not sure. Is, I'm not sure if he's caddying for her for him over there, but he often caddies for. She has Louis. a boyfriend who's a caddy. Okay, he's a PGA boyfriend. member. Okay. Yeah, a, oh, okay. Member well, at the same club sorry. as Louis oh, from yeah, Queensland, okay. so there's a yeah, friendship yeah. connection. So did he come here to caddy for for him? Well, I saw he was in the Golf Australia house a couple, in Florida a couple of weeks ago. So, he, so he might well be caddying for him. Okay, big guy. Okay. Big gold jacket. I'll look for him now. I, I I just saw this kid Steelman who he's playing, and does he go by yeah. say? Uh, Lewis or Louis or what does he go by? Louis. Louis. Louis Dobbala. Dobbala. Yep. Okay. Good player from Queensland. Well, anyway, they're tied. They've just are on two holes, but they're they're so they're just started in Oakmont. You know, they've taken every tree out. So this kid Steelman, yeah. he must have like a twenty six inch waist. He literally has nothing on his body. He is just skin and bone. He had, he had one fifty three into number one, but he was down in the ninth fairway. Uh, so he's intentionally just playing away from the out of bounds. I mean, he was 
I because I figured he must have wedged out or something to there. Nope, second shot. So he has one fifty three into the first. Now you can have a little flip wedge into the first at Oakmont if you get it running down the first fairway, mm. but I've never seen anybody just try to play it down the ninth because you have to really aim way left to do that. So. I'm just sharing that because I just know there are people at the USGA watching that and probably yeah. at Oakmont going, are you kidding me? I mean, it's not See, safe and it's just it's just spectacular. We want to keep changing the architecture, Jeff, or protecting the architecture. You just got to play it a different way. Well, it's still that's a fun golf course. Great. Play it down the ninth there's people walking up the ninth fairway and you you bop them in the head with a Titleist, of, uh, wow. which, of course, everybody's got corporate logos on in the, yeah. in the spirit here <laughs> yeah, of the yeah. The final U.S. amateur before the name, image, and likeness disaster kicks in. So, anyway, I just wanted to share that example of the ball going too far, and um, yeah, they're they're way behind. At least they started the matches. That's that's a positive. Peek into, a peek into the future, perhaps. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, so yeah. Might, yeah. Well, it's you, a four hundred and ninety yard hole, so yeah. Um, you won't get that Ash Barty nugget on any other no, podcast no, in the world. Only Clayton can bring Only, that sort of wow. Ball. That was I was I did not expect that, but uh, yeah. He, anyway. I went to Bamburga with Clayton in Tasmania a couple of years ago, and we were just sitting in the clubhouse having a drink. We had a, a state of the game thing that we did, Jeff. You know, and people paid to come along and listen to Clayton and I talk about the course, and we did a course tour, and we're just sort of sitting in the bar. Pat Rafter walks past. Hey, G'day, Clayton. How are you going? Is there anyone you don't know, Clayton? <laughs> Pat <laughs> Rafter wandered past. Hey, G'day, Clayton. How are you going? Hmm. Unbelievable. Anyway, yeah. um, I, I stumbled into the tennis world through Paul McNamee, who was a great doubles player. We must player. get him on here actually one day. He's got really yeah. interesting in thoughts fact, about some of the stuff Paul that Richard talks be, about as well. Paul yeah. would be great on Richard's podcast. I was going to say, Richard, yes. you should get Paul on there because Paul's hugely. Yeah, I'm not. Sure, I'm not sure how much he would say, but he's hugely behind the Djokovic push to have the lower ranked players better remunerated. He thinks it's disgraceful that. All the money in tennis goes to the top 100 players and no one else makes a living, which makes it very vulnerable, going back to what we're talking about, to gambling and players throwing matches just to be able to pay the hotel bill. But, uh, yeah, let me talk to Paul because he would be an interesting guy for you to talk to, actually an unofficial be. partner. Because he's a good talker too. He's an intelligent bloke. He's well, well, he, you know, he was tournament director at the Australian Open for years. Right. He started the Hopman Cup. He ran the Australian Open golf. He's probably, probably no player is better transformed the skills of playing into mm. sports administration. He took the ropes down at uh, the Australian Open Clubs, if I remember, on the 18th. He'd, he, he allowed everyone to come in onto the fairway to watch the, the last hole and that sort of stuff. Well, great. he did that on every hole. Yeah, that's right. It was fabulous. He could, once the players had gone past, he let the yeah. crowds come onto the fairway and then back out and, yeah, and back down the it. sides again, which, yeah, was, which was a – yeah, they kill a lot of good ideas because that's they worry. Yeah, I'll, ch- I'll chase you up on that. Yeah, he'd be good. So I know he's over in Europe at the moment, but I can put you in touch with him. And, and he might do it, he might not. But if he did, he'd be brilliant for you. Yeah, I agree. Perfect. I think he'd be fabulous. And if he's not, he's, he's, there's no getting out of it. He's got to come on state of the game no matter what, Clates, because yeah. that's safe territory. Who in golf can, in tennis is going to listen to a golf podcast? He can say whatever he wants. Yeah. It'll be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Let's wrap it up. been fabulous to uh, chat to you all. Start with you, Richard Gillis. Always great to chat with you and really appreciate taking the time late in the evening over there, I know. So fabulous of you to stay up and, uh, and talk nonsense with us. Thanks very much. I really enjoy it, as ever. And uh, state of the game goes from strength to strength. <laughs> well, the, state, the state of the game continues to come out occasionally, okay, but it's yeah. generally strong when it does. So we appreciate the uh, the kind words. Clay, it's great to talk to you as always, mate. Thank you, Rod. Enjoyed it. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, in, as did I. And Jeff, always get to always great to get the uh, to get you to come on and defend America against these international attacks. Yeah, that we probably like not the right one. But, um, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, and I'll uh, yeah, and I'll post the show on the blog, and that that McKinley article's on my blog as well. But I'll oh, I realize I'm too. talking about an article people probably don't uh, know what I'm talking about, so I'll include that with the uh, the pseudo show notes and a link to uh, to Richard's uh, newsletter as well. Yeah, the news, absolutely. If you haven't got time to listen to all the podcasts, and trust me, nobody does. I don't know how you managed to produce them all, Richard. The newsletter is fantastic, and every now and then it reaches extraordinary heights. So make sure you sign up for that. That's it. Uh, We've covered a lot of ground, left a lot uncovered, but we'll be back to do it all again next time here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.